You're listening to Answering Difficult Questions Biblically, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Question number 11. What happens to Old Testament saints versus New Testament saints when they die? And the, the question went on to say that they believe that New Testament saints go directly to heaven to be with them. Um, but do they remain in paradise until Jesus' second coming, or did they rise to heaven after Jesus' death? I think it's talking about Old Testament saints. Did the Old Testament saints remain in paradise until Jesus' second coming, or did they rise to heaven after Jesus' death? That is, am I correct in believing that they were in paradise, which is near Sheol? After Jesus died, do they remain there until his second coming, or do they rise and immediately go to heaven? So, This is one of those questions that is very detailed. You can tell the person has done a lot of study in the subject of heaven and hell and the current location of both of those places and then what's going to happen or or at what point do we go up to heaven to be with the Father and at what point do the people that are in hell go from Sheol to the lake of fire? Like all of those questions. And I think for, for a lot of us, we are content to say there's heaven there's hell. When we die, we go to one of those places. How exactly that sorts itself out in the future, that's for God to decide, right? And we will just kind of get on the train, hopefully the heaven train, and we'll ride it to wherever it takes us, all right? And that's, that's completely fine if that's your perspective, because you're right. There's heaven and there's hell, and, you know, we'll end up being, heaven's going to be a good deal, hell is not, and so just make that right choice, I guess. Um, but for those who really want a very detailed explanation, uh, it is kind of a puzzle that you try and look at different parts of Scripture and you get clues here and there and you're trying to put it all together. And so let's, let's go back a little bit and say, well, what, what exactly happens to Old Testament saints? And Are Old Testament saints saved the same way New Testament saints are saved? Because the, the Old Testament, they don't get to believe in Jesus, Right? Because Jesus hadn't come yet. So how are Old Testament saints saved? And I think in Romans um, 4, verse 3, we get some of this answer. All of Romans 4 is kind of making this case. um, For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and is accounted to him for righteousness. Um, Romans 4 talks about David and his salvation. Paul's argument in Galatians 3 is just that, that we are all, just like Abraham was a child of God by faith, we are children of Abraham by faith. And so uh, over and over again, we can find in the Bible that those who were the children of God were children of God by faith. So this is, this is faith that God will provide some kind of redemption for them. Right? Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. So they... they didn't see the whole plan like we do. They couldn't look back to the cross and say, yes, Jesus died for us. He said on the cross, it is finished. We have this privilege of being able to have all of these events behind us and say, this is exactly was God's plan. For them, it was, we trust God. We recognize we're sinners. We're going to do what he tells us to do in offering the the lambs and over and over again to, to cover the sin for a period of time, but we recognize that God needs to send something to save us from our sins. They didn't know the whole plan, and even if you look at what the prophets were saying, sometimes the prophets will say something, and then they'll um, express their 
lack of understanding for what they just said. So they don't, they didn't, they didn't see it all. They just believed. They trusted that God would provide a sacrifice for them. And that was, that's what, that was enough. That's how Old Testament saints were saved by faith. Back in the Old Testament, the concept of heaven was, was present, but it was not filled out. It was not discussed in any kind of detail. I think we mentioned in our Daniel series that um, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, Many of those who slept in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And that's probably the verse in the Old Testament that most clearly talks about eternal life being a place of reward and eternal damnation being a place of punishment. Um, that both of those things exist and, and that everybody will rise to one of those two. So it was there. It just wasn't discussed nearly as much as it was in the Old Testament, which is a little bit interesting that when Jesus comes on the scene, that feels like one of his primary topics. Like he talked about heaven and hell just about more than anything else. I think money more, but really he just used money in some of his stories often. So um, Jesus comes from this place in the Old Testament where Heaven and hell are there, but they're not filled out. And one of the things he does is fill out that detail for us. Okay? It's almost like he came from there. Almost like he's the one who fully understands it, and he's the only one qualified to to teach us really what it's all about. So he does that. New Testament saints, we understand that um, we're saved by the blood of Christ, Christ alone. We look back, we see what Jesus did for us. And Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So salvation now is through faith in Christ, finished work on the cross alone, um, so that we can have our sins forgiven. Um, We now can discuss in detail concepts like atonement, redemption, imputation, and we can do that uh, based on understanding what Jesus did on the cross. So he redeemed us. He purchased us back. He gave his blood. Um, Imputation. Our sins were imputed to his account, and, and his righteousness was imputed to our account. We can, we can say things like that. In the Old Testament, they had symbols that pointed to the same concepts, right? So even though they, they, wouldn't, they didn't have Paul's epistles that described to them what imputation was, they could look at this idea of the lamb that was slain and, and that had to pay for the sins and then the scapegoat that was let go that was, that was free, right? So, so this whole idea was still there. It was just more symbolic. Um, so then we get to the New Testament and you say, okay, well, what's going to happen when people die? What's, what about the glorified bodies and all those things? Uh, and we understand that we will receive a glorified body at the end of the age. Daniel 12 says that and Philippians 3 20, 21, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, John 5, 28, 29, Revelation 20, all speak about the glorified body that we'll receive. So what happens now when we die? And when do we get this glorified body? And I think that the the most obvious answer is um, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Meaning, when we die, we leave this body, but our soul, our spirit, is present with the Lord until someday there's a, there's a reunion that takes place. When Christ comes back, the, the gra- bodies from the grave are raised and, and they join us and somehow, I mean, this is, we're talking about things that we can't really understand because they're so miraculous, but somehow that, 
our, our body comes back um, and we are reunited. Where does a person, what happens with a person who is um, not going to heaven, who's going to hell? What happens to that person's soul and body? And it would seem like they go into the grave, the pit, the hell, and we'll talk about that in, in, a, in a little bit, um, into Hades. But then at some point, they're also raised up for final judgment and then cast in the lake of fire. Just the picture of that, the rising up and then the casting out, seems more than just a spirit. It almost seems like they, they, they're raised up and cast out in their non-glorified bodies. I just don't, I don't, can't describe that to you. That doesn't, that's, we're not given a lot of detail on that. Just the, the picture of that for me feels like it's a rising up of something and then a casting out of something that seems more physical. But um, so, so that's like, if we're, if we're coming at it and we're trying to understand, those are the places you're going to go to to find that you receive a glorified body and that you are raised up and that you spend eternity um, with God in your glorified body forever. Here are a few complications, okay? Complication number one is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, some of you know this story from Luke chapter 16. I say story, but many would call it a parable. And the question is, is this a parable or is this a story of somebody real that actually lived and something that's happening currently? And, and pe- people who argue it's a parable argue it's a parable because one, if you believe it's a real story of something that's happening right now, then it's hard to figure out exactly how it fits in the whole narrative, right? Because in this story, we have both the rich man who dies and goes to hell, goes to Hades, and the poor man who dies and goes to Abraham's bosom. And from where they are, they can see one another and have a conversation with each other. Which, when I picture us going to heaven and people going to hell, I don't picture like, hey, (laughs) you know, just across the other room or whatever. It feels like it's different places, that those things must be disconnected. Otherwise, heaven doesn't feel like heaven and hell doesn't feel like hell because they should be completely separate. But here we've got a story of two people having a conversation and then the, the rich man having a conversation with Abram trying to say, like, send somebody to go tell my, my brothers so that they don't come here with me. And it's, it's easier to call it a parable because then you don't have to deal with the, the reality of the events. Then it's just a whole story. But the, the, it makes it a very unique parable because no other parables use names of people, names of places, and such specific details. Parables are usually like there was a woman who lost this and then found this and then celebrated. Yay, good for the woman. But it's not like they had this conversation. This is what they said. And then you know, this was the name, this was the place, and this is, you look to this right, you know? So that, that's what makes it more complicated if you're going to call it a parable. It's just, it's also easier. So you're going to have to decide what you do. Um, I was taught that it was a, a real story, and it's hard to move from where you first came. But um, So that's the first complication. Complication number two is after the cross. Jesus dies in Matthew 27, 50. Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Beautiful picture, love that. The earthquake, the rocks were split. That's pretty cool to think that like Jesus died. He gave up the ghost, the veil of the temple. There's this earthquake, rocks split. Verse 52, and the graves were opened. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. In coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. So that's a very unique and interesting account. Like at the cross, all of these cool things happen with the veil and then the earthquake, but then also graves open up and bodies get out of the graves of saints that had passed before and start walking around town and talking to people. Like this is, this is incredibly unique. And so what exactly, like who is in that body? Did the spirit rejoin? What happened when that happened? And that's, this is another big complication for us. Also, where did they go? Did, was this like God, Jesus led captivity captive? Or was that like, do you understand that it gets very complicated when you're trying to sort out and make an, a firm case for, for anything? Um, when I look at that event, I don't try to make some kind of like um, normal argument from it. I don't try and look at that event and say, well, this happened, therefore everybody must have been asleep in their grave. And, and so that's the point when everybody asleep in their grave finally woke up and, and their, their bodies and their spirits were separated. And so I don't try and make that point, right? Um, what I do with that story is I'd say the cross is probably the most incredible, amazing, unique thing that ever happened. Deity died for humanity. Um, and this is just one of the crazy, unique, um, never-to-be-replicated kind of things, although it will be replicated when he comes again, but you know what I mean. Like, it, like something that, that's unique to that time that, that any application that's made as a normative application, it won't make sense. It's not meant to. It's not, it's not meant to be something we establish um, our understanding of heaven and hell and where our spirits go on that event. I think that's just the crazy thing that happened when Jesus gave up the ghost. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, and so that's a, that's a complication number three. I also think that what, when you see the, like if we're going back to the author's intent and what, what like why did only Matthew record that? Because it's, it's a very unique thing. Um, why, if it's so cool and unique, why wouldn't all of them record something about that? And I think that the fact that Matthew says when the centurion and all those who were with him were guarding Jesus, they saw the earthquake and the things that happened, uh, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. I think that probably the purpose of, of the graves being opened and the bodies coming out was to... Uh, reaffirm, reiterate that this truly was the Son of God. And so it was a proof that God was giving to the world that like something incredible, amazing just happened. Veil, earthquakes, bodies rising. This is not just a normal human death. Uh, and I think that was the purpose behind it. And so, so that's why it was recorded. Um, the purpose probably wasn't for us to figure out what happens to us exactly when we die. Okay, 
Um, Jesus on the cross, when he says, you'll be with me this day in paradise, that's an interesting statement. Um, and that gives us an idea, at least some, some idea, that there is a spirit and a body that moves um, and goes to be with God. So, complication number three. And I'll just give you this one because it's fun, because <laughs> it's not complicated enough already. Number three, um, in Hebrew, the word sheol is used 65 times. It means the pit. It's translated the pit three times, the grave 31 times, and hell 30 times. Sorry, it's 64 times. So the pit three times, the grave 31, and hell 30. So when you're talking about Sheol, it seems like sometimes you're just talking about death, the grave, going to the grave. Other times you're going to hell, and sometimes you're just going to a pit. Rarely you're going to a pit. And so how do we, how do we try to use all of the different uses of, of this word? Like the, Obviously, when the translators are looking at this word, at different times, they think it's talking about something different. So how do we go to all those times and figure out exactly what it, what it means? And I would say in, in that case, um, there is another Greek word, word it's, or Hebrew word, it's like kabar or something, and it's used 65 times, and it's the word that means grave or burial place. So if, if it, I don't think that sheol means like the place that you're, the literal place that your body is buried, the grave. I think it's talking about the grave as in like what happens after this life. So you, you've gone from life to the grave, whether the grave is hell or the grave is the gra- like just the grave. But it's not, it's not a place. It's a, it's a more of a spiritual place, a spiritual word. Does that make sense? So Sheol would be a, a spiritual term for what happens after we die. Um, we get to the New Testament, and the word Hades is used in the Greek 11 times. 10 times it's hell, and one time it's the grave. And so again, Hades is the uh, Greek New Testament equivalent for the word Sheol, and it's, I, I would say that it probably refers to the same things, this idea of where what happens after, okay? Um, not a literal place where your body goes, but where your spirit goes. Um, but what's interesting, in the New Testament, we, there's another word for hell. There's two, but one primarily used um, is Gehenna. And when, it, when, when the Bible is describing hell as a place of fire and brimstone and where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, most of the times, it's always referring to the word Gehenna. And so that's when we start to get some of the detail filled out about what hell is like. Um, and uh, there's a long explanation where the word Gehenna came from, but it's a place of, it's the place of punishment. And so, um, why is it making it complicated? I don't know. It's just complicated when you have like Tartarus, Gehenna, Hades, Sheol, uh, and how to figure out exactly where all those places are and why they're all used separately. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.